welcome to the hot literati the hot literati is a collective of cool hot well-read people my name is Haley, and i am so happy that you're here thank you for all of your patience i really appreciate it i am going through a lot of changes right now both personally and professionally so i really wanted to make sure i could sit down and take the time to really think about what i wanted to say in this episode before i you know recorded it and uploaded it that being said, today we will be discussing James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time. The first time I read this book, I was 18 and it seemed that I had almost just learned that racism was something you could feel subtly. In a glance or maybe a conversation that just feels funny afterwards. I'd seen things on social media, read about American history and contemporary news. I'd even received backlash with racial undertones after winning a pageant title. But nothing prepared me for the way race functioned on my Ivy League campus. During my orientation event, a week with a bunch of new undergrads at a campsite in New Jersey, an alum of one of the first integrated classes spoke to us. I went up to him afterwards, said a few words about how much it meant to meet him, and he mumbled to me about his experience, how he was never really alone because black people were already there. They'd been there for a long time, cleaning up after and cooking for the waspy undergrads. He befriended them, and they supported him and became his friends. Throughout the next four years, as I became one of those undergrads, the same dynamics chilled me to my core predominantly brown and black employees cleaning up after the undergrads. And sure, the students were all polite, grateful, but how was it that this one dynamic remained constant? My best friends and I would walk all the way across campus to one specific dining hall to see this one woman who smiled at you and called you baby as she grilled chicken that was actually tender, unlike the other dining halls. In another closer dining hall, I spoke often to a Jamaican chef who gave me updates on the growth of his newborn son. Because while I navigated classrooms and precepts where I was often talked over, disregarded, or made to feel an imposter, whether consciously or not, it was in these people, like the man that I spoke to during orientation, that I was able to find community, familiarity, and love. In The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin speaks of this community-oriented love as the one thing that held the Black American community together during all that horror. He writes, quote, If we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you and for the sake of your children and your children's children. End quote. The book was published in 1962. In it, Baldwin opens with a letter to his nephew advising him on how to carry himself and conceptualize race in a world that will punish him for his. He then details his own upbringing in Harlem, his relationship to Christianity, his meeting with Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, and broader conclusions about America's past and future regarding race. The book's title, The Fire Next Time, refers to the story of Noah's Ark and a spiritual derived from it. Quote, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time, end quote. Pulling from the book, along with my own thoughts, I'm going to discuss racial identity, religion, primitivism, and why I feel like this book matters in today's America. The first thing I want to talk about is race as a social construct. I had not heard this phrase until I was 19 in a lecture my sophomore year, and it absolutely blew my mind. Race as a social construct is the idea that race is not necessarily real. 
It's a system of categorizing people that was invented by humans. Race as a category isn't inherently bad, but historically it's been used to justify violence, prejudice, stereotypes, and obviously this is when it gets really bad. So why is race so deeply ingrained in our society if it is simply a social construct? One reason is just time. Using race and cultural difference as justification for terrible things started as early as the 1500s. Slavery wasn't abolished in the US until 1865, and even after that, we have a failed reconstruction, Jim Crow, etc. So that's over 300 years for racialized prejudice and difference as a justification for dehumanization to build on itself more and more and run amok. It was accepted as such a truth that during the height of American slavery, it was a radical notion that black people were people with minds, hearts, feelings, and should be treated as such. Baldwin is well aware of this, but his rationalization of it isn't that oppressors are all evil or bad people. He wants black people to confront any internalized hatred lingering from racism, but he doesn't want them to turn it on to their oppressors either. He calls for some understanding within the relationship between oppressed and oppressor, that just as much as the subjugation of black people was to keep them down, it was to keep their oppressor up and provide white people in the US with a sense of themselves. If they thought of black people as Cain, it's so that they could conceptualize themselves as able, denying the horror of their own violent imprint on the world. Baldwin writes, quote, Please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority but to their inhumanity and fear. Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which raises about your youthful head today, about the reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people, and there is no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history with which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years, and for innumerable reasons, that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. While the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations." End quote. So Baldwin writes about these two racial identities, black and white, is almost like yin and yang, two identities dependent on the existence of and comparison to one another. We see this in so many racial tropes. Black women have historically been masculinized so that white women could remain feminized and dainty. One of my favorite professors compared this to Lana Del Rey's controversial post about soft femininity in which she mentioned Beyonce and expressed that she felt there wasn't room for artists like her anymore. Disclaimer, 
I love Lana Del Rey's music. I literally listen to her all the time. But the symbolism of a statement like this is so striking because there has literally always been room for female artists like her. And by positioning herself in opposition to Beyonce, she made a statement of almost racial opposition, whether intentional or not. Black men have historically been emasculated so that white men could have more power and domination in the world. This dynamic is potentially why we still see so much internalized patriarchy in the black community. The black male identity has almost become hypermasculine, a pendulum that swung too far after the emasculation within the history of American racism. And again, all of this opposition, or even balance if you will, is dependent on the idea of a racial identity, this urge to categorize people and make sense of them. Baldwin claims that if we do away with this idea, it will shake up everything, but perhaps it will allow us to view everyone as one and the same, and to view ourselves as who we truly are without comparison to others holding us in place. But doing so would also challenge over 300 years of internalized history and society as we know it, a challenge that Baldwin continues to pull at throughout the book. About halfway through the book, Baldwin details his visit with Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam. He's invited to dinner with Elijah and some of his followers, and though he's already pretty familiar with their philosophy, they discuss how they believe that all white people are, quote, cursed and are devils and are about to be brought down, end quote. Baldwin says that this offers, quote, divine corroboration of their experience, to hear that their captivity was ending, for God was black, end quote. Baldwin uses this story, this encounter, as a vehicle to compare a black god to a white god, a god that supports the notion that all white people are devils, to a god that supports the notion that all brown and black people are primitive and need to be reformed. He also briefly mentions the Holocaust and the role that Christianity played in the construction of hatred towards an entire group of people. Baldwin warns against making a statement against any entire group of any sort, of declaring an entire subset of individuals the subject of some type of hatred, especially if that hatred is justified through some god in the ascription of values or goals to this god. Quote, The glorification of one race and the consequent debasement of another or others always has been and always will be a recipe for murder. End quote. I've been religious my entire life, but I remember being confused in church very young. I didn't understand how the same God that I was told every Sunday was loving and forgiving and fair would make some people queer, for example, and yet deny them admission to heaven. I didn't understand how the same people who sat with me in that chapel and read scriptures about loving your neighbor could call my family racial slurs or be fervently opposed to something like same-sex marriage. It didn't make any sense to me. I believe in a God, I still believe in one firmly, but I don't believe that he supports the degradation of an entire group of people based on a category, particularly if these are people he took the time to create one by one. I don't know if my God is white or black or gendered or genderless, but I do know that my God calls upon people to practice radical love, both for others and for self. This idea of a loving God a concept that spans across almost every religion that I know of, at least, gets lost so quickly when we manipulate religions as a vehicle for oppression and hatred. At the beginning of the very construction of racism, a lot of white European thinkers would write about Africans as uninhibited or unelegant. 
Often now, we think of the words primitive or tribal. One word that got thrown around a lot in some of those original texts was the word sensual. In this early colonizing context, sensuality was considered bad. It was used to show how, quote, unreformed black people supposedly were and why colonization and ultimately slavery supposedly needed to happen, end quote. Baldwin has some fascinating things to say about sensuality and the myth of primitivism, which we'll get into after discussing something called colonial desire. Colonial desire is one of the most interesting racial concepts, in my opinion. The first place I saw it mentioned, I think, was Anne Chang's book, Second Skin, a study of modernity and the legacy of Josephine Baker. My friends and I also discussed it all the time during undergrad. It's the idea that the oppressor wants to be with or even become what they are oppressing. On a surface level, I think appropriation takes on a fascinating meaning when we look at it through the lens of colonial desire. Baldwin, however, broadens this idea to claim that the oppressor is targeting the oppressed out of a rejection of the things that they don't want to confront within themselves. He writes, quote, The white man's unadmitted and apparently to him unspeakable private fears and longings are projected onto the Negro, end quote. So take the racial stereotype that the enslaved were animalistic or non-human. Is there anything more animalistic or non-human than the domination of another human being through force and violence? But the point isn't to turn over the narrative and rewrite stereotypes rooted in opposition. The point is to look at the reality of human nature, the private fears and longings rooted in all of us, and to acknowledge that internally we are all capable of the same thing, the same emotions, the same hatred, the same love, the same joy, the same human experience. We are all capable of sensuality. Baldwin says, quote, To be sensual, I think, is to respect and rejoice in the force of life, of life itself and to be present in all that one does, from the effort of loving to the breaking of bread, end quote. So through this line of argument, Baldwin almost turns the mirror back onto colonization, reformation, this idea of civilization, and the creation and reification of social constructs as a negation of sensuality, placing more and more limitations on the human experience. When do the categories and identities we place on ourselves in society simply become limitations? Towards the beginning, I mentioned the story of Noah's Ark and how the title The Fire Next Time relates to it, that the rainbow was the first response to the problems with humanity, but that the next time we're getting fire. It's easy to assume that Baldwin uses this to refer to some sort of racial uprising. In fact, I think that's maybe what I thought the first time that I skimmed the book for a class at 18. But it's not that simple. Baldwin warns against hatred, against the denial of another's humanity. He warns that we have the capability to end our own existence through the sheer struggle for power and domination, often under the guise of civilization and reforming society. It's not about proving how bad history was or placing a blanket of shame across the shoulders of our past. 
This leads to further and further polarization, a legitimate crisis during a time when websites that we spend a majority of our time on show us videos in efforts to radicalize us, alternating between ideas we'll be fervently for and fervently against, literally training our brains and potentially our hearts to look upon someone and immediately be filled with assumptions and maybe even hatred. This is a path towards fire and destruction. What Baldwin is calling upon us to do for the sake of ourselves and our future is to radically love one another and to radically love ourselves, to shake off the pain of our past and any limitations on our ability to fully inhabit ourselves with love and joy and sensuality. And this is the only way we avoid boarding a burning ark. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in this topic of radical love for others and self, uh, we'll be reading Bell Hooks' All About Love for a six-week book club starting January 15th. Um, there's a lot of crossover between these two books, and I think it'll be a really bright and hopeful exploration of love in society. The link to sign up is in the description. I hope you're all having a wonderful start to 2023, and goodbye. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day.